so so we might uh, start. Uh, so we'll start with prayer. Hopefully you all have a handout because it will be useful. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, we pray in your mercy uh, that as a result of the things we look at tonight, uh, we will grow in confidence in the word that we read, that reading it we are listening to you. Uh, help me to speak your word uh, and to teach your word tonight truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, do we read the Word of God as we read our English Bibles? Is translation legitimate? Or should we ask everyone to learn Greek and Hebrew and, yes, Aramaic for those little bits of Daniel and Ezra, uh, as Muslims are meant to learn Arabic? So uh, do we read the Word of God as we read our English Bibles? And what relation does our New Testament Greek text and our Old Testament Hebrew text from which we uh, make our translations, what relation does uh, that text uh, bear to the what we'll call the autographic text? That is, the text that comes from the pen of John or the letter signed off by Paul. And next question, what relation do our English versions or any other kind of uh, translation to another language, whether it's uh, uh, French or Farsi or whatever, what relation do our English versions bear to that autographic text? Can we say we have the Word of God? Have we been in the earlier talks asserting the authority and reliability of something that doesn't exist? Or can we say uh, that our English translations are the Word of God? So firstly, uh, let's start off by thinking about the legitimacy of translation. And first of all, we think about the purpose of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, before he ascended, told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, Jesus expected followers of all nations his command implies translation because the very nature of being a disciple means that you need to hear and understand Jesus' teaching. And for that you actually need to be able to hear and understand all the scriptures. If they're going to be disciples of all nations, God's word has to come in the language of all nations. And that's reinforced uh, by the Apostle Paul, remember, he says... Faith comes through hearing. You actually have to hear and understand the gospel and the gospel is to be to all nations and that means the gospel will be in all tongues. And Paul stresses that for going on in the Christian life in 1 Corinthians 14, what is spoken in the assembly must be intelligible if people are going to be built up and so at the beginning of the Christian life and for the continuing of the Christian life both the nature of faith and following means you need to be able to understand what you hear you need translation and we know God wants people to hear and understand and so come into relationship with himself that's why he sent Jesus into the world and that's why Jesus 
sent the apostles with the gospel into the world. And of course what is implied is expressed as a reality at the beginning of the church. Uh, remember when the Spirit is poured out upon the apostles of Pentecost, a great multitude comes together, verse 6, and they're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Uh, you know, Parthians, Medes, how is it that we hear each of us, verse 8, in his own language? And again, verse 11, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You have that repetition that the word, the spirit-given word, comes in many languages. And the apostles, remember, have been sent to be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. And this is telling us at the beginning of Acts as they will be equipped by the spirit to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in other tongues. And uh, the reality of God actually tells us uh, that there will be translation. It's in harmony with the truth of God. God's the creator and Lord of all. Jesus has been sent to be the saviour of the world and in fulfilling that promise, in fulfilling that role, he fulfills the promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's saving purpose always embraced all nations. And we see this actually at the end. Uh, Jesus has purchased for God, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, the gospel's not a form of Jewish nationalism as I think the insistence on speaking Arabic is. It's just a form of Arab imperialism. And, uh, and God, who uh, made the brain and the speech centres and gave us our larynxes, can communicate in whatever tongue he wishes to save his people. You know, uh, uh, humanity is not homogenised in salvation. Our unity is in Christ not in linguistic uniformity. And in a sense, we're gathered around the throne in our distinctness. So translation really has always been intended in the purpose of God from the beginning. It's legitimised by Jesus' command. It's demonstrated by the language of the Spirit. And let me say, translation was already accepted. Translation of the Word of God was already accepted by the apostles as witnessed uh, by their use of the Septuagint, which preceded the time of Jesus by a couple of hundred years. And we've seen going through the book of Hebrews, haven't we, haven't we that the author refers repeatedly to the Septuagint, to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he refers to it as the word of God. Translation has actually embraced from the very beginning of the Christian faith. So it came to a people who were already translating the word of God, accepting it, and using translations as the word of God. And let me say, the Septuagint's not a perfect translation. Uh, and sometimes the apostles will depart from it, but they use it. And of course, that principle of translation was to some extent, we think, already operating uh, in the synagogues of uh, Palestine uh, uh, because of the development of what they call Aramaic Targum. So when the 
Hebrew was read, <laughs> they'd actually stand up and give an Aramaic paraphrase. Now, those targums, the written ones, date two to three hundred years later, but they think that the practice actually precedes uh, Jesus uh, in the synagogue. So there's already translation going on. The necessity, and finally, the, this acceptance of the necessity and legitimacy of translation is seen in the rapid appearance of translations into the languages of the people to whom the gospel came. So it was always a missionary language, uh, always a, a missionary faith taking the gospel to people of other nations and very soon within those other nations as part of that missionary enterprise there were translations being made. For example, uh, the Old Latin, which starts to appear from the last quarter of the second century, Syriac from the second or the beginning of the third century, Coptic from the third century, Georgian after the middle of the fourth century. In fact, that's dated quite well because Ufalas, uh, who was the missionary to the Georgians, actually invented their script and translated the Bible uh, for them. It's been there uh, from the very beginning, Ethiopic, Armenian, all of these translations were happening right from the beginning. So translation is necessary. And even though we'll see that there are always issues in translating a message from one language to another, translation is possible without the claim to anything being a perfect translation, as even the authors of the King James Version say in their preface, uh, when they're talking about their relation to earlier English translations like Coverdale or Geneva, uh, part of their justification was you can always make a good translation better, uh, which is true. Now, translation of the message actually does two things for us. It actually puts the focus on meaning, actually understanding what God has said so that we can communicate it, but the fact of translation, the necessity of translation, of going back to the Hebrew and Greek, keeps us grounded in history and the particularity of salvation. That is, God's revealed himself in real events, in real time, and a real place to real people speaking their languages. And so in the Christian faith, uh, we, in a sense, uh, get both, and not in an arbitrary way. It's not because Hebrew is spoken in heaven, right? Right, we, we get both because God makes real revelations to real people in their real languages at a real time and place. So you have original languages. But the message is always intended, really from Genesis 12, always intended for all people. So you will always be getting translation, but grounded in that particularity of revelation, therefore grounded in original languages, in this case Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. So how do we get from a Hebrew and a Greek uh, that the books of the Bible were originally written in with that little bit of Aramaic to our English translations and how do we know that they are the word of God? Now I've lifted this diagram with some adjustments from Duval and Hayes, Grasping God's Word, uh, which when we come to interpretation... Uh, do I tell you now or at the end, that I actually think I'll come to that next week. There's a fourth session. Uh, anyhow, that's what I'm thinking. It'll give us more time for questions. Okay. Um, I'll break it to you gently then. Uh, right? Uh, this is a helpful diagram. Okay? It, 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 it illustrates the process. So we move 
from inspiration, 2 Peter uh, 1. Men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, God moving the authors through the Spirit to write his word through all sorts of ways, to the actual transmission of the text. So that's the copying of the text that went on over centuries. Then to the gathering of uh, the text uh, into what's called a critical text. So the Greek and Hebrew that our, well, more especially the Greek uh, that our uh, translations now are based on is not just one text, it's actually a text formulated by examining many texts uh, to arrive at what is the original. We're going to look at that process. So it develops what's called a critical text because it's the result of textual criticism, which we'll come to. Uh, and then uh, that critical text, which is actually pretty uniformly the basis of translations, with just one exception, uh, becomes then the foundation for the work of either a translator, but uh, more normally these days a translation committee. So uh, behind, uh, say, the new RSV or the NIV or the ESV, or there is a, a panel of translators, and usually they publish them and, and who they are and then they produce their English translation that comes to us and we read. And of course, there are lots of English translations and we'll look at why that's the case. So, uh, so uh, God moves, say, a John or a Paul uh, to write, uh, to uh, write what, in a sense, he given through the Spirit. But of course, what was written by John and Paul was of interest to many. Uh, as soon as they believed the gospel, they wanted to know more. And of course, uh, people like John and Paul are located in time and space. They can't be everywhere. And so Paul himself starts writing letters and the people who get them think this is good. And then they travel to another city and they say, we got this letter for Paul. And the believers there say, well, we'd love it. We'd love to have that too, because this is the word of God. This is how we grow in understanding. And of course, the apostles start to at some point you know, I think they're going to die out, right? So people think, well, we don't want to be without testimony to Jesus. So somebody writes it down like a John Luke, and people think, we want that. And so uh, that autographic text starts to be copied. And all the Greek and Hebrew texts we have are copies and copies of copies. So let's think, as we're going to think about that text, how that text is produced. What's involved in that copying, because we're unfamiliar with it. Most of you have probably never written out a book by hand. Is that right? Right. You want something. You you you. Well, you want something that there's a lot of. You you photocopy, but there's no photocopying. You want a book, no printing. Right. There's no way of producing mass copies all exactly the same. The printing press comes about 1439, 1440. Up to that time, every text had to be copied out word for word by hand. And there are certain features of that process that almost make error in that copying out inevitable. Okay, And if you don't believe that, you try copying out a gospel for yourself. Okay, So let's start by thinking about some of the features of handwritten books. So what are they made of? Because the material actually affects what you can do with them and, and, and some of the issues. 
So ancient books come in basically two kinds. There's either papyrus, made from the papyrus plant of the Nile, which, because of the way it was made, was usually written only on one side. So they'd have sheets going horizontally and they'd glue them to kind of together. But then across that, they'd put other bits of the papyrus at right angles and people would write on right along those but it meant that they couldn't write on the back because the sheets were going down. It's much more difficult. Some were written on the back, but it's unusual. Okay, so mainly on, on the front, and of course it's written on one side. So there's papyri. And then, uh, because at one stage uh, the rulers of Egypt were controlling very much the release of papyri and you were dependent on them and that fixed the price, uh, they developed uh, parchment around the city of Pergamum and parchment was made from the skins of animals and very fine parchments called vellum and some very expensive Bibles were made on that and that was used up to the Middle Ages really until uh, paper became more popular and they mastered the ability uh, to put ink on paper without it running and that meant you had to move from water-based ink to oil-based ink. But anyhow, that's another story and you can Google that just like me. Right, uh, the traditional format for writing a papyrus at the time of Jesus, first century, was the scroll which was made from papyrus sheets glued together and the maximum length of a scroll is about 35 foot. Uh, so there are actually limits to the length of any work. That's why Luke's comes to us in two volumes because you just couldn't keep going. You actually had to stop physically. That, that was how it was, why Tacitus comes to us in so many volumes. It's only so much you can fit on one scroll. And, uh, and uh, it was usually written in a series of columns two to three inches wide. And before a, a uh, scribe would start work, first he'd draw up his columns and they were actually quite set. And that again is important because you can tell how many letters Will, will fit on any one line, so you can actually tell if something's being left out or something like that. Anyhow, um, uh, this is a papyrus fragment of John uh, uh, P52, John 18, 31-33, the oldest known copy of any portion of the New Testament, uh, dated to around the first half of the second century. And by the way, I've included uh, in the handout um, uh, some websites, because the amazing thing is now you can go online and you can look at all of these. It's extraordinary. You can you can turn the pages of Codex Vaticanus, which I'll come to. It's just just amazing, and that comes from a, an exhibit from the John Lyons Library of the Chester Beatty Papyri, which they brought online. You can all look at, and there is there uh, a reference to the South East Baptist Seminary library because that page in the library contains a link to all these other sites which contain uh, papyri and documents. It's quite extraordinary. So if, if that's what you like, you don't have to travel to the British Museum or anymore and they would probably never let you into the Vatican Museum. So, But you can turn the pages. It's just amazing. Anyhow, uh, uh, anyhow, so that's papyri. Early in the second century, the codex was developed. That's the leaf form of the book made by folding papyri sheets in the middle and sticking them together. And that became more convenient and it allowed the development of collections, like collections, the Gospels collected together in one book, or the epistles collected together in the book. And the leaves could actually be written on both sides. 
and so did increased uh, cost. And with Codex, the parchment became more popular because it was actually tougher and could be more easily uh, sewn and more easily written on both sides. And this is a picture of a famous, uh, you can't see it, sorry, a famous 4th century Codex, Codex Sinaiticus, now in the British Museum. Uh, but it's a very famous codex with a great story called Sinaiticus because it was found in St Catherine's Monastery in the middle of the 19th century by a bloke called Tischendorf and he found it because he observed that the leaves, you won't believe that, the leaves of uh, parchment that were being put in the fire actually had significant ancient Greek written on them. He rescued 43 leaves from the fire. Uh, anyhow, uh, and then they let him have a look at it and he realised what it was, complete collection of the New Testament as well as some of the Old Testament and the Epistle of Barnabas, things that they hadn't found. Anyhow, that's another story. It's a great story. Anyhow, there were two styles of Greek script in the early centuries. There was a, a cursive style for everyday document which, and what's called an unseal script, which is Greek capitals, uh, where every letter is uh, separate, which was for um, literary works, and this is Codex Vaticanus, it's in unseals, and there's a photocopy of the unseal. Uh, this is from Sinaiticus on, on, on your handout, the back. The top is an unseal script, which we'll come to. The, beneath that is uh, what's called a minuscule script, and that came about because of a reform in handwriting in the ninth century, uh, smaller letters in a running hand which used less space and therefore less parchment, which meant it saved money and could be, and it was less bulky, and it was also easier to write. And because it was less expensive, it helped actually multiply the propagation of the text. And uh, minuscules are more widely spread. And so, in our text of the New Testament, uh, minuscules outnumber unseals by about ten to one. Okay, uh, and that's because of the ease and the lesser expense of minuscule scripts. But also, unseals were generally older, and therefore they're much more likely to have been damaged or lost in the in the in the in the process. Now, some other uh, features, as you can see by looking at that handout, unseals are written in what's called a scriptio continua. That is, a continuous writing. There are no spaces between words and sentences. Uh, so you really had to know what you were doing, uh, uh, but Greek words only end in certain things, so uh, there wasn't complete chaos. Uh, but, but, uh, and until the 8th century, pronunciation markers like commas and full stops were actually very rare and, and not, not used. Uh, and that's why churches had lectures for reading aloud. Uh, you really could not get up on a Sunday and open your Bible and just go, uh, unless you actually knew it very well uh, before you started, because you actually had to s distinguish the words and uh, things like that. And, and there was a system, and this all gets compounded with some of the characteristic errors, but there was a system also uh, for abbreviations. Uh, for sacred and more frequently used words. And the bar was to draw attention uh, to the fact that it was an abbreviation. Now, the copying of the New Testament, the whole Bible, went through a number of stages, and each stage 
had some characteristic possible errors. So initially there was the copying of individual books done by private individuals making their own copy and so there was a variable quality in those copies depending on the skill and the understanding of the individual because writing was not a particularly widespread uh, skill so, and not, and not practised. Then in the second stage in the 4th century uh, after Constantine came to power, there was official sanction and support for the copying of the text and there was an increase in production by professionally trained scribes working together in what was called a scriptoria. And a scriptoria would be a smaller, much smaller room than this, but they'd all be there probably sitting cross-legged with the manuscript on their legs, right? And they'd be writing as uh, somebody read slowly. Uh, the text. This way, in a sense, you could mass produce the text. From one uh, exemplar, one existing text, you could get 20 or 30 copies being made at the same uh, time, uh, 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 which was good. Now, uh, and at the end of every day, they'd then be checked by a corrector, and scribes were paid per number of standard lines, and so a complete Bible was extremely expensive, which is why it depended upon the patronage of somebody like the Emperor Constantine to actually be mass-produced. It was, as uh, right. But some characteristic errors of hearing could creep in by inattention or by mishearing or what are called homophones, words that sound the same but have different spellings, like bear or bear. Or, or great or great, and I'll come to those. Uh, for, for ex yeah, yeah. Or boys put their bags there. So there, there and there, homophones. Anyhow, uh, later in the Byzantine period, and the East, it's called that because the East was governed from Constantinople, and that was later called Byzantium. Uh, copies were made by monks in the many monasteries that were in Constantinople and on. Athos, Mount Athos and places like that. And they'd make their copy from their own. So they'd have their exemplar and they'd have to make their own copy. Uh, and this also had risks because copying involves, says Metzger, four fundamental processes. Firstly, you've got to read the lines that you're going to copy to yourself. Then you've got to retain the material in your memory. Then you've got to dictate the material to yourself because most of them read out loud and then the movement of the hand in copying. And so a failure of eyesight, remember, no glasses. So if you've got astigmatism, those unsealed letters next to each other could kind of merge a little. Uh, anyhow, no glasses. Uh, Harmonising what was read, because monks often, to be admitted, had to memorise large slabs of the Gospels, <laughs> something like that. Or, uh, so they got a lot in their head. Uh, a lapse in concentration or a failure of understanding or a, a drive to tidy up the text or to include what they think as bits of information that would be helpful uh, could all give rise to errors. Now this was hard work. Uh, ancient texts often will have either little marginal comments or something at the end, a, a kind of personal note by the scribe here, a couple. Uh, he who does not know how to write supposes it to be no labour but though only three fingers write, the whole body labours. Or, writing bows one's back. Imagine sitting cross-legged, writing, right? Writing bows one's back, thrusts the ribs into one's stomach and fosters the general debility of the body. That's a cheerful way to finish off your manuscript. Uh, 
and, and Metzger records in one Armenian manuscript the scribe put emotional uh, a, a side note saying it was snowing outside, uh, he could not feel his fingers, and the ink had frozen. So, so, and 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 they were, they they worked under some degree of threat. Uh, because uh, monasteries, this is just all interesting, really. Uh, but monasteries would encourage, they had certain rules about that. In order to secure, now this is from Metzger, which is a great book, if you like a great read. Okay, it's in the readings. In order to secure a high degree of efficiency and accuracy, certain rules about the work of scribes were enforced. So here's some examples. About AD 800, the abbot of uh, the monastery at uh, Studium at Constantinople, uh, included in his rules for the monastery severe punishments for monks who were not careful in copying manuscripts. A diet of bread and water was the penalty set for the scribe who became so much interested in the subject matter of what he was copying that he neglected his task of copying. Could you imagine that, just reading the gospel? Ah, what a waste of time. Anyhow, uh, monks had to keep their parchment leaves neat and clean on penalty of 130 penances. If anyone took without permission another's folded sheets, 50 penances. If anyone made more glue than he could use at one time and it hardened, 50 penances. If a scribe broke his pen in a fit of temper, perhaps after having made some accidental blunder near the close of an otherwise perfectly copied sheet, because he'd have to do it again, he had to do 30 penances. So, you know, they worked away. Uh, so generally they were very conscientious, but in the process... Uh, errors will occur and have occurred. They're there in our manuscripts and those errors will enter the uh, textual tradition. So I'm now going to give you some of the errors that are in our manuscripts. There is no perfect manuscript. Uh, you just need to bear that in mind. Uh, and again, you can consult Metzger for a full list. He classifies them as intentional and unintentional. So errors could arise through faulty hearing at that stage where it's being uh, dictated. And, and you're thinking, that looks like all Greek to me. Uh, and you're right, at least the... the uh, right? Uh, but, but those two words are echomen and echomen, right? They're pronounced entirely the same, the top. Uh, but the first one says, they're from Romans 5.1, the textual tradition's divided. The first one is, let us have, and the second one is, we have. So it's a subjunctive and an indicative. But they sound exactly the same. And there was a time when a whole series of Greek vowels, uh, the long E, the I, the U, the upsilon, and diphthongs, were actually all pronounced the same. And so the words you got there are we and you, hemes and hemes. That's right? 1 John 1 4 uh, is there. In fact, that's a relatively frequent error. It's an error of hearing, just crept in. Because they actually sound, they're, they're homophones. They sound exactly the same. There are a few others, nekos and nikos and things like that. right? And then there are errors of faulty eyesight. Uh, you know, uh, it can make it difficult. You saw that unsealed script. It can be actually very difficult to uh, distinguish between unsealed letters, and especially if the text you're copying off had not been done particularly carefully or they crowded it up. And that's from Romans 6.5. 
Uh, the one on the left is A L L A. The one on the right is A M A, Allah and Amma, but and together. But you can imagine if you got a bit of astigmatism and it wasn't carefully done, right? It could, you could read that together. Another characteristic error is what they call haplography, the omission of a line of text which facilitated when the line ends in the same phrase. And uh, there's a real example in John 17, 15, and this is from John 17, 14 and 15, just as an illustration, but you can imagine. So they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I did not ask you to take them out of the world. Now imagine that there's actually a straight line. It's going down in two columns, right, in a straight line, and you're translating away, they are not of the world, right? And you, you look at your example, you write, and you look back to it, and you say of the world, and what comes after it, I do not ask that you. And so you go, they are not of the world, I do not ask that you, and you've left out a line. So it's a characteristic error of eyesight. It could happen, in, but less rarely, in reverse, and uh, they look up and thought they hadn't written it and rewrite it uh, again, and, and that's that happens in Acts. Uh, anyhow, uh, in Acts with the number of people on the boat with Paul, there are also uh, what you call errors of the mind, uh, the substitute of synonyms. So Greek has a couple of ways of saying he said, uh, and uh, I pen and fe, and a scribe would just. He's thinking, it says he said, so he wrote, he said. He just wrote a different he said than he said in the text. So it's like he said, he stated. And, and just like us, uh, there can be variations in the sequence of words because it's going on in your head and you're kind of remembering it, or even in the transposition of letters. And so there's an English example of the transposition of letters. So only one letter's changed between Tsar and Tsar, Star and Tsar, right? Uh, and now that can happen in Greek, uh, elobon and ebalon and anyhow. It uh, just happens in, in your head. And often they could assimilate the wording of one passage to a slightly different wording in a parallel passage. So let's say you're copying in Mark, but you've memorised Matthew. Well, when you come to write that, or, you know, you actually write what kind of Matthew had, even though you've read Mark, and it's so similar. So and these are the way things happen. Then there are uh, rarely uh, errors of judgment, as Metzger said, errors committed by well-meaning but sometimes stupid or sleepy scribes. And sometimes they were working in a language that wasn't their own. So you could be an Irish monk working in Rome and your grasp of Latin was okay but your grasp of Greek was zip, right? And, and you know, you're working in... Anyhow, so... so uh, uh, that could include the incorporation of marginal glosses and that's what we think has happened in John 5, 3, the explanation of the stirring of the waters. There's lots of differences there. Uh, there's a, a whole series of these, but I'll give you a famous one. So remember, uh, the text is in these two columns, okay? One monk, famously, and it is so rare, it's notorious, Codex 109 from the 14th century, Instead of reading down this line and then down this line, he read across like that. And it was actually the genealogy of Jesus. So God ends up being the son of, uh, of Amram, of Aram, 
and the race originates with fairies. So you think he probably did not understand what he was writing. But anyhow, that's a notorious example and, and easily detected. Uh, right. Any, anyhow. And then there are changes, intentional changes that can happen. Uh, changes in grammar and style. Many of the Greek-speaking monks really did not like uh, some parts of the book of Revelation because they were pretty rough. Uh, you know, they had nominatives where you would expect genitives and things like that. And so they just <laughs> supplied the genitive uh, and actually missed the point. Uh, but And intentional harmonisation. So if they knew the Hebrew, say, or they knew the Greek version of the Old Testament, they came to a quote, they'd actually, even if the quote had been changed by the, the apostolic author, they'd actually just harmonise it with their understanding of what the Old Testament was, that they were doing them a favour. They kind of clear up historical detail, sometimes even add. So a couple of monks actually know the name of the Philippian jailer in two manuscripts, Stephanus. You can store that up. I don't know if it'll ever come up in trivial pursuit, but there you go. Right, so, so things like that, and they conflate verses because... Monks have this tendency to want you to know everything. So if Matthew had a little bit of detail that wasn't in Mark, they just sometimes just added in. So you got the whole story. Right, good. Uh, but remember, these aren't uh, mass-produced. Uh, oh, by the way, that's how prayer and fasting happens, by the way. Uh, you'll see the King James Version's got lots of prayer and fasting and modern versions, and it's not just our cultural aversion and self-indulgence. Uh, modern versions just have prayer. Uh, but there was a time when fasting was really important uh, uh, to people copying these texts, and it just crept in. Right, um, anyhow, so they're not mass-produced, so they're just in that text and those copies from it. And the evidence is actually that most scribes were extraordinarily conscientious. And I am focusing on the uh, Greek text, the transmission of the Greek text, because the Hebrew text, if, if most scribes were conscientious, uh, the, the, the Jews copying the Hebrew text were perfectionists. So they had a whole system for counting the number of words. So if you look at a, a critical Hebrew uh, Bible, uh, you'll notice a whole series of marks under the letters, and that allows you to know where the middle of the verse is and how many letters are on one side and on the other side. So as well as reading, it gives you a way of copying, and if they made one mistake on the page, they'd throw it away and start again. They were really exact. And the Hebrew uh, textual tradition is very stable, so much so uh, our oldest Hebrew text was Codex, the Leningrad Codex, 9th, 10th century AD. Then they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, took, took the textual history back a thousand years, basically, in one blow. And then they looked through, say, the Isaiah Scroll. It is very like the Leningrad Codex. It's an extremely stable uh, text, uh, working within a very close community, unlike Christians who are madly propagating their texts and sending them out with all sorts of people undertaking it. Anyhow, so we're mainly talking about the, 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 the Greek uh, text. So what text do we have and how does that compare with other documents from the past? That's an important question uh, because for reliability, uh, 
for reliability of our critical text uh, depends on the proximity to the writing of the original of these ancient texts, that is, how many years separate them from the original, and on having sufficient copies to allow us to detect copy errors and deduce the original. So uh, you take uh, that... Um, uh, well, you could take, say, the number of people on the boat in Acts, and a couple of manuscripts have got... 76 instead of 276, and uh, how do you detect that? Well, if you only had you know, five manuscripts, it would be pretty hard. But if you've got over a couple of hundred, and only you know, four or five have that 76 and not 276, or whichever way around, I can't remember it is, it actually becomes easier to see. Ah. And then if you can explain the error, how the error arose... Uh, you know that you've actually got the original in the others, but we'll come to more of that. But So number of texts and proximity of uh, the text to the original are actually very significant for the reliability of uh, our Bible text or for any ancient text. And what we have with the New Testament is an extraordinary abundance of evidence and it's actually early. The New Testament is by far and away the best attested ancient document. Uh, and so I put in your notes uh, the textual basis for some famous ancient works that scholars rely on. Uh, just for comparison, and you can see this in Paul Barnett and other uh, books like that, but so the Bible of the ancient Greeks, the Iliad, 457 papyri, two unseals, 188 minuscules. And it really was the Bible of the ancient Greeks. And so it was very widespread. Or Josephus, famous Jewish historian. The oldest uh, manuscript you've got is a Latin translation of the 5th century and only nine complete manuscripts of his work. And yet he's a very significant historical source. Uh, there you've got Euripides, uh, Tacitus, uh, his annals, the first six books, belong to one manuscript from the ninth century. And yet again, they're a source for ancient history. And there is the poor old epistle to Diagnosis, one known copy, which was burnt in 1870 in a Strasbourg fire. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's a bit sad, really. How does the New Testament compare? Well, again, you've got a list there because uh, people over the centuries, and particularly uh, from the 16th century on, have gathered uh, Greek manuscripts uh, and then they have ordered them, examined them, determined their character and, and uh, ordered them and these days they've given them a consistent number. Now, not all those texts are of the whole Bible. In fact, relatively few of the old ones are. They're often either of some of the earliest to just fragments, as you saw with the John Ryland's papyrus, uh, and, and others might be just of the Gospels or the Gospels and Acts or just the Epistles. Uh, so, so different books have a different uh, textual history. Uh, and you notice that they're classified or they're divided in terms of the material they're written on, so papyri because they're usually the oldest stand out, and then they have the unseals and the minuscules uh, which are written on parchment, uh, though... Most of the papyri were also written on in unseal. So type of material and script. And, and you'll notice that, and then I'll come to lectionaries in a minute, but you'll notice 
uh, that they're growing from 67, 76, 87, 89. And that's because uh, people are, are going through uh, their collections because sometimes people have just bought a job lot of papyri and they haven't had time to examine them all. That happened to the John Rylands papyrus, uh, which is the oldest known text. They bought a job lot, it was sitting in the John Rylands library, and the librarian just happened to be going through, sifting through these bits of papyrus to see what they had, and praise God, he actually recognised Can you imagine getting that little... And he recognised it. He actually recognised what was written, just that little bit. And then he rushed out, but, but it was just this job lot of papyri fragments that they brought up from Cairo. Uh, and that's still happening. Uh, today, so people are actually going through their collections. They're also trying to find more and buy more. Uh, the, the explosion in Greek texts actually came in the 18th century, uh, 19th century, sorry, when there was actually availability of travel and things like that. But anyhow, so they, they're growing. The evidence is actually growing. Uh, and you'll notice their lectionaries. Now, for those of us who aren't um, in kind of Anglican churches, a lectionary is a schedule of readings used in churches. It's a church reading book containing the text of selections appointed to be read for that day. So it's not a whole copy of the Gospel of John, say. It'd be a bit of John for this day and a bit of Matthew for that day and a bit... But it's still evidence of the Greek text. It's in Greek, but usually it's been standardised and, as so, broken up into the readings of the day. But they are all evidence of the Greek text. Now, you've seen some numbers above, but a rapid calculation tell you that you have over 5,000 uh, witnesses of the Greek witnesses of the New Testament. And they're not just numerous, they're close in time. So P52 from the first half of the second century. Now think about that. Uh, that's John's Gospel, thought to be written around uh, Asia Minor, so it's had time to be written, it's had time to be copied, it's had time to be transported uh, down to Egypt. Uh, it's it's a remarkably close to the first event. And that was a papyrus fragment that uh, turned a whole school of, criti of uh, criticism on its head. So there's a bloke called F.C. Bauer who was postulating in the 19th century that John's Gospel had actually been written after 160 AD. Had to come, he said, towards the end of the second century. And then the librarian digs up this fragment from the first half of the second century and a whole critical school that many people have bought into just dissolved. Couldn't be sustained. Uh, anyhow, so it's very early. P45 is about 250, P46 about 200. Uh, the, 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 these great unseals, manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, Sinaiticus is the only complete copy, unseal copy of the New Testament. It's from the 4th century, so that's about mid-3, you know, about 340, 350. Now that is extraordinarily close, and so what you've got is this growing uh, body of uh, Greek uh, manuscripts. It's different for different books, so the book of Revelation, the last book, is the least attested, but it has 300 Greek manuscripts, including 10 unseals, though three of them have only one leaf. And, and there's kind of reason for that. If you're the last book, you know, you get the mice before the others, uh, that kind of thing. And you, you might joke, but actually that's kind of what happens. Uh, yeah. uh, now, the work of gathering and collating manuscripts still goes on. So in that... Um, 
in uh, in the uh, URLs there, the one that goes to the, I think it's Southwestern, or is it Southeastern Baptist Seminary, has a link there for the Centre for the Study of New Testament Man Manuscripts. And this is a bloke called Daniel Wallace, who is a great Greek grammarian. He founded the uh, centre to utilise emerging technologies uh, and preserve the study of manuscripts and it's actually collaborated with 40 institutions on four continents to produce more than 350,000 images of New Testament manuscripts which scholars can then work on and they've actually discovered working on all these, because it's easier to scan something into than to actually study they've discovered 90 New Testament manuscripts not just doing that, it's just extraordinary and it's all accessible. And you know, sometimes numbers go down because you'll realise that a fragment that you've got here uh, in this city actually is part of the same manuscript as you've got in this city too, so sometimes the number will go backwards a little, uh, but generally it's just going up and up as they, as they get there. And as well, so they're the, they're the Greek uh, manuscripts that are evidence for the New Testament text. There are other things too. There are the early versions, that's the early translations. Then there's quotations in the Greek fathers and that's kind of significant. It actually does matter to know what kind of text, say, a Clement at the end of the first century uh, writes about or an Irenaeus in the late second century because you can actually test your manuscript against a dated figure, somebody you know. It gives you a sense. You know, if your manuscript has the same reading as Irenaeus, you know it's around in the second century. Uh, things like that. And, and then, uh, uh, so the early Greek and Latin fathers, and, it does, and they get really keen, so they also look at Ostraka fragments of pottery that can have verses written on them, and due to a certain degree of superstition, phylacteries would also often have a little bit of uh, New Testament written on it. You know, that's what they people carried around to ward off the spirits and things like that. But it's good evidence. I, it doesn't work uh, that way. Uh, trusting Jesus will keep you safe from spirits, but uh, it's good evidence. Uh, now, what do we do with this abundance of riches? How do we marshal the evidence to arrive at what the apostle wrote with certainty? And that's probably uh, time to have a break. And now you know why we're going to have a fourth week, when I really will do interpretation, but we're going to get to the end of translation tonight. So uh, if you can be back here by uh, five past, ten past, by my watch, which is, right, uh, so that we can get the foot down and we'll look at, we'll look at uh, what we do.